0: Right, so if you have uh, notes, you've got the, the papers that are over here. If you'd like to follow along, you have the notes, all the scriptures and stuff. All right here, I'll pass if yeah, passage. I do you want them, I'll just pass them So you can follow along. The scripture passage will, will be there. Anything you want to take a note on, you can do that. And I like to have the, the scriptures there so you can go back and check these things out another time you have a little bit less rush and you can read them, read them in context. We're going to throw the notes up up here as well, so you can follow along on the screen. And If you'd like to use your web name your smartphone, use the free app called New version Under live events, you will find um, certain things one and the notes are well, So you can use your phone to follow along, you can use the sheets. If you've got your own Bible, you can pull it out and have a relationship chapter three, which you already know that. Um, and hopefully you'll take some of that stuff that sounds kind of confusing and help it to be a little bit more clear today. Right, so, we've just come through, it's been a couple of weeks down, it a little while, we came through Easter and Passover. And that's what we remember what God has done for us, what God has done in history. And the story starts with God rescuing his people, rescues them from slavery. That's the way the story begins. You know, the Israelites are all in Egypt, and they're in slavery, and that is a big deal, and they would like to get out of slavery. And then we remember uh, the Passover and how God claimed and chose and freed his people. Uh, he entered into a relationship with who he called his people. He initiated. He started it all. He started working on their behalf. Then there's the story of the plagues. and The escape through the desert, the awesome, awe-inspiring story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Then the more intimate revealing of God. I mean, at this point, we sort of think, could there be a more intimate, personal revelation of God? As he comes down off His throne, Interact with his people and to use his own finger to carve into the stone the Ten Commandments. This is the peak, this is the pinnacle of Jewish history, and it's absolutely fantastic. There's no recorded place where there are stories that are anything like this in any religion, in any even myth, that describes what was happening in this place. God goes on and says, There's more that I want to reveal of myself. I want tell you more. So he gives some more guidelines for how his relationship will work. And they call out the law. It becomes known as the Torah. How do we be in a relationship? How will this work out as we go forward? And he does this, of course, he does that after the people say, Moses, please talk to him and, and, and you
1: talk to him. Don't let it be. Oh, so God, you talk to him and then
0: tell us what he said. And so they wanted that kind of distance. They can't handle the idea of direct contact. And then we skip forward. We get to keep, you hang on to the law, if you hang on to it past its due date, it has a shelf life. It was intended for a certain period of time. If you keep hanging on to the law, you'll put yourself back into slavery. When the slavery of the story starts by God taking them out of the the story will reverse itself. So today, we're gonna to talk about saying goodbye to your old boss. It is hard for the religious person in all of us to grab hold of this radical freedom of the new covenant because we like, we are comforted by the letter of the law. It keeps things neat, keeps things tidy, We know what to expect, and we know what to expect from others, or at least what we should like to expect from them. And we watch as that Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the whole thing, we watch as God's people try to get back to obedience to these laws. That's the story. We've got them. and we keep going away and coming back, and the New Covenant says, oh, no. There is something much better. There is something so much better more than what you had. Not when God carved on his law his stone, it's when God breathed his spirit into flesh into the womb of Mary. Then his word, his law, was not stone, not, not page and print anymore. His word became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved into the neighborhood He moved into us, and filled that out, and then once again, Pentecost, the Spirit breathes his word, and his word is into people now, not just one, but into many people. Into the church, so that the word may continue to be in flesh, in people. The new covenant is an in flesh covenant, which we pass on personally. We pass them on his teachings, and then, then we mentor one another, and we share what we've learned and what we're learning. We share those things together and say, this is God working in us, and it's not just something that we take from another place. We are experiencing these things together. We still need, and we still hang on to the book, to the Bible, to stay the course, but it's to keep our minds fixed on Jesus, to keep our eyes focused on the point, where it was coming to. Jesus was the center. But ultimately, the New Covenant is not just another written covenant. It is an in-people covenant. That's how the Apostle Paul, uh, that's why the Apostle Paul, he was writing the second book looked at last week in 2 Corinthians 3. So this is just a quick reminder. It says, uh, you, clearly you were a letter
1: from Christ,
0: showing the results of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. So, we're going to continue talking about this covenant, what it means, and today we're looking more specifically at what does it mean to enflesh the covenant. How do we now live because of those things? So we start to think righteousness apart from rules. Paul, as we jump into Galatians chapter 3, he's already been arguing that the Torah the law, the Ten Commandments, if you hold on to them too tight, they lead you back to slavery.
1: Galatians as a
0: book, as a letter, exists because Paul came and he taught the Galatians, the people who lived in the city of Galatia. He came and taught them about Jesus, about grace, and then he left because that's the way he worked. He was there for a time and then he moved on. And after him, a group of other people came and he heard about it. Another group of people you could call the religionizers, or or the, the Judaizers. They came to town and brought with them a passionate message of almost. The gospel is a really great start, they said. Paul has left you some really great baby steps. You now have Jesus 101. But if you want to go deeper, we like to have that language, right? This means to go deeper into the into the spirit, deeper into uh, the relationship with God. This is the way they describe it. If you want to go deeper, you need to get back from the old covenant. You need to dig more into the law itself so that you can see and begin to experience how life might be enriched by getting this other stuff back in the mess.
1: Heads up, you need to know there's some dietary
0: laws that you're going to have to start following. You're going to want to get those things straight. Maybe take care of that circumcision that hasn't been done yet, but look forward to those religious festivals. They're coming. We've got a bunch of them throughout the year, and you're going to love Sabbath-keeping. It's going to be wonderful. You know what? There's a whole long list of steps that you need to follow, that you need to get straight, before you can fully engage, before you can be a fully informed God follower. The gospel is a great start. It gets you born into the kingdom, and now the Old Testament will cause you to grow in your faith. It's graduate school for gospel people. Paul hears that, and then he writes the book of Galatians to tell them the exact opposite. He says, the Old Testament's not graduate school. It's not how to do this thing better. It's going backwards. It's like going to kindergarten. We've outgrown this into something new. and uses some very intense and very vivid imagery to push people forward into the covenant. So now we jump in. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 19. This is what we were reading. We we're going to try to pull it apart a little bit, slow it down a little bit so we can hear what's being said. So this is the question that we sort of ask week after week. Paul's asking here again, so why then was the law given at all? Starts the answer with, it was added because of transgressions. So what does that mean? It's vague enough, the way the language is used there to have two meetings, and Paul was probably just wily enough to attend both of them. And so we'll look at them like that. Um, both meanings apply. So the first one would be a protective meaning.
1: Because of our sinfulness, God gave a lot of trying to continue wickedness
0: to some extent. So we didn't completely destroy ourselves. As a young and really strong and wrong-headed little kid, it's going to need an extra added layer of discipline in their life. There are going to be very clear rules, very clear expectations, clear rewards, clear punishments. Very strong will Old Testament covenant language would be hard-hearted and stiff-necked. You've read those things a number of times, right? That's when he said, oh, you are hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. This is what he's describing. You're kids that just don't get it. So we need to keep you in that place. So because of transgression, because of your sin, there was the law. It didn't cure the problem, but it did continue. So in this culture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was not about encouraging
1: violence,
0: which is the way we do Wow, it seems really harsh. But in this world, in this world, it was, you take from me, I'll kill you and your whole family. It was revenge culture. That's the way they, they uh, existed. And so this law is actually limited. Bias. It's directly and containing only this much. Just that. You can't go over and above. It's the same for the same. It's just trying to limit wickedness. In the revenge culture, the law limits. The law has a protecting or a preventing rule. That's one. The second meaning it has is that it has a provoking role. It provokes us to see the level of our own sinfulness. Left to ourself. We will write our own laws and our own rules. We will self-define right and wrong. And you know this, because we do it all the time. We still do. We still say, I don't think that's a bad thing. That's not wrong. I'm a good person. Look at me. What standard are we using? I'm using the standard that I decided. I'm a good person. I'm finished. And so we take this idea, and the, the so law works now like a law. God has put a line down for us. Here's the line: don't cross it. As soon as you say that, you realize what an incredible struggle that becomes. We realize that once the line is there, all we want to do is cross it. And then I can't cross it. But what I do want to know is how close can I come to it? When when is it a problem? Does my foot get to touch the line? Is that a problem? What if both are on the line? What if I'm riding the line? What if I turn around and my butt goes over it? Is that okay? I didn't actually cross it. How far can I go
1: like this? How
0: long can I stay like this before it's a problem? And then somebody says, just come over here. I've got to show you something. If you come over here, I can get around the line. This is not. No one said that we can't do this exact thing specifically, so it must be okay. So I didn't break the law, but I didn't cross the line. I didn't cross the line because that would be wrong. There was a loophole, and we got away with it. And we find that this is the way that we want to live. Whatever that line is, we look for the loophole. No one said that exact thing was wrong. That must mean that it's right. The law. Provokes an awareness within us that I just want to do whatever I was wrong. I like being near wrong. I like testing wrong. I like experimenting around wrong. This way of thinking continually focuses on us on what is wrong. We spend our time dealing with what is wrong. We don't put our mind on what is right. It helps us to think continually of what I can do with this. And maybe you're not like that, but that is so true for me.
1: There's a line
0: there, I'm to be all around that line. And the wrong part, we start to argue about what makes it wrong. It's just wrong because God said so, right? There's no real reason that it's wrong. Just God has his thing. We never consider the best to care for us, to love us, to show us what he's like. And when he reveals what he's like, he's showing you, this is what I would like you to know. This is the best possible way you can live. But we don't agree. We disagree with that because it's crapping me. It's getting on my back, and I don't like it. And so
1: I want to ride
0: the line as closely as I can. So the law has these two rules, protecting and provoking. Neither one bringing about salvation, only revealing the fact that we've got a problem. So we get back to Galatians 3. Now we're at verse 21. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. If the law could help you, if the law could heal you, it would have done that by now. If it could have given you life, it would have by now. But, and here is the first, big but of the day of this passage.
1: Today you're extra lucky there's more than one but. You get more than one big but today. So the first big but starts in verse 22. But
0: Scripture. This is the way it was. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So when he says Scripture there, it's beyond just the law. So he's not just saying, well some people define the law as the first five books of the Bible. That's the law then there's the writings, then there's the historical books, then there's the poetical books, so there's the wisdom. he's saying, no, no, all of scripture works this way. And when you say all of scripture, it can also be looking forward to everything that becomes scripture as well. He's using prison language here. All of scripture just locks you up under sin's control. So here's a warning that he's giving you, and a lesson for how you are to read and treat Scripture, that Bible that you have, that Bible can lead you to the one who will liberate you, who will bring you to freedom, who will teach you about grace and goodness and deliver you from evil. And that is where that book can lead you. But if it doesn't lead you there, if you don't hear it right way, what you will do is take parts of it. And you will use it to justify all kinds of absolutely horrible, horrible things that have nothing to do with Jesus, that have nothing to do with God. But you took a passage that we can justify violence, slavery, oppressing, torture, racism, the list goes on. And if none of those things come up, if your problem with the scripture is not that it's led you into these deep, dark sins, and it has the potential to simply lead you into a life of justified religious legalism. It may not be sounding as, as bad or as overt as violence, but religious legalism over time kills. It crushes so many souls. and you a guess, there is someone here today who has had religious legalism crush them. That they met with it in some way, that the church, who was supposed to be the kind, grace, loving people, not about judgment, but about to declaring the truth of God, there is someone who has experienced that, and if it's not you, then it's me. Okay? That the legalist has come down and it said, you are not enough. You are not good enough. You don't belong here. You're not part of this. And if you heard that message from the church, then you were heard hearing a lie. All that time religious legalism was there to say, follow a rule, but at the same time, holding them back from ever coming close to Jesus, from ever experiencing the grace that Jesus came to tell us about. And people have said, thousands of people, if that is what God is all about, I want no part of that. And they walked away. They ran away. They ran away.
1: Violence was easier to say that's wrong. I can
0: identify that, but when it was religious legalism, it sounded like it was all right. They were doing what was right, weren't they? Paul is here to say that that is not the way. So Galatians three, keep going, starting in verse twenty-three. Now, before the coming of his faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, if you have your Bible here, you have your text, whatever, your, whatever translation you're looking at, the word for guardian, there are many different ways this comes out. Does anyone have something in there that's different than guardian? Right. right? Trainer, yes. Anybody else? I'll tell you what your Bible is going to say it <laughs> But yeah, does anyone else have something there? Guardian, a trainer, Schoolmaster, tutor, teacher. That's what the word means, okay? So you have to be able to hear it directly in the right way. The word is translated from Greek, the Greek word is paragogos. the slave that was responsible for taking care of the kids when their parents were busy. We would use the word, it's more common how to say a pedagogue. We still use that kind of language, but not directly. So, uh, if you're a wealthy family, you might have like a nanny for small children. Pedagogues would take the kids to school. Um, Probably not directly their teacher, but it would guard the kids, make sure they are safe, take them where they need to go so the children are not left unsupervised. You take them home from school, you help them with their homework, Uh, you you make sure they're eating properly. They were the ones keeping the kids in line. That is the description of what the law was. That a ghost, someone who took care of you when you were a child. First, it's a prison analogy. And then it goes on to the guardian tutor analogy. So, first the old covenant was our prison guard, then it was our guardian. And the guardian is definitely a little bit warmer, a little bit nicer, a little bit friendlier. But if the old covenant was your guard, it is now time to be free. If you have been oppressed by religious heavy-handedness, Jesus wants to set you free from that. If you have been ruled by someone else doing all of the thinking, you and just telling you the rules, do this, don't do that, then it's time for you to grow up. Either way, the gospel leads you into a whole new way of living. The new way that God has sent, we will come together. We will live together. Verse 25. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We have been set free from prison and we no longer need our man. Verse 26 So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, uh, clothe yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are all being made into one. Our differences are our strengths, and our divisions are our weaknesses. Now, if you look at the Bible you have there in uh, verse 26, it's uh, most of them say children. Does anybody have a version that says something other than children, sons, sons? Anybody? <coughs> it's important. The Greek word here is sons, and it's sons throughout, and it translated as children because we've had some problems in the past
1: about using
0: passages of scripture to indicate things that they don't mean to indicate. And so it says children here, so it's not gender restricted. And that's an important consideration, not because we're, uh, we're we're all equal, that's not the point of it. The message is much more significant than just saying it didn't mean just boys. Um, because it goes so on to say there's no male female, right? That's how the passage continues. It's not a deciding factor in who this is for, it's for both Men and women, but it's it's more than just saying you're included. It's more than just saying it's not restrictive. The word that they translate children for most of us, most of the translations, is incredibly important to read or to know that it says sons. Because in this culture, this is a tremendously counter cultural thing to say. Here's why a female. Could never really get the chance to make wrong decisions. Life did not have that for women. It was part of the culture, surrounding culture, specific culture. All of them. That's just the way things work. So the normative of life would be little girl, little boy, raised by pedagogues, taken care of by that. So parents make decisions, give directions the going to pedagogues, pedagogues take care of you and you go along. And for a girl, when you left your pinnacle, the next step would be for you to get married off to some fellow guy. And this fellow guy was now your Lord. He would make decisions for you. He was the one who would make these choices that would set you in direction. And as a poor, frail little girl, you never had to worry about making your own decisions. Or, you never were allowed your choice was never significant at that time.
1: Women could not be heirs. They could not inherit property. So if you had a
0: family, son gets the inheritance. If you're the eldest daughter and just only younger son's younger son gets the inheritance. If you are an only child and mother and dad love you dearly, and you're a little girl, they will find your cousin or your nephew take the inheritance, not you. History would teach us at that time that women were simply bypassed, they didn't have it. So when Paul says this, he's saying men women, brothers and sisters, you are all sons of God. Not gender restrictive, but liberation, this is um, standing free, you are all now being placed where you will have rights. Privileges, maturity, decision-making like a free adult. This is what you have graduated into. No longer separating because of those things.
1: He's calling you sons not to indicate male that He's calling you sons to indicate you will get the inheritance.
0: You are the same in this place. So in this world, what Paul is saying here is huge. Equal. Not just equal as we can have the same job on the same pay. That's our problem. What he's saying is you have the full status before God, the same, full rights, full privileges. You are an heir to whatever Christ has given Whatever the Father has for us, it is for all of us. In this relationship, you are involved. You are the one who will relate with the Spirit, male and female, to decide how life goes forward. Moving down to Galatians chapter 4 verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he holds the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Remember the context we're looking at this. How does this impact the way I live? This but today is affecting how I live. So you could be a and You are the little heir, the little master. Like little Bruce Wayne. And you have hit 20. 20 is about the typical age when the transfer would happen, um, and then you could start taking over the estate. But if you're the heir, if you have everything coming to you, it's all yours, you will still live under an adoption until you're about 20. They will be the one who guards you, takes care of you, trains you, and you will be as their children. So even though you're in the heir, you own everything. It's all yours until you're 20. Your life will be the same as a child of a slave. It won't be functionally any different. So that means that when you're under that slave model, it doesn't matter who you are in God. You are not able to live out. We're not talking about how to just trying to get the history of what this passage says. We're looking at how this passage talks to us today. If the law is what you are under, then you will never be able to live under your inheritance. That's not the way it works. You are under a burden. But now, we are to grow up responsibility. We're we're growing up to be the mature children that God has called us to be, to receive our inheritance. You must participate more now than you ever had before. Before it was simply do or don't do, now it's engaging. I am responsible for what I like. I have been given freedom to do it, but it won't just happen. I have to engage in this. Starting in verse 3, so also when we were underage, we were enslaved slavery under I mean, the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But, but, here's the next big but, but when when the time had fully come, God sent his son. There's lots of implied theology of what's happening here. God who sent his son. God sent, that means divinity. That means he pre existed and was sent. He was born of a woman. That talks about his humanity. He was born under the law. That's his context. That's where he came in. He was placed within the religious system. To blow out from the inside of To redeem, that's his mission. Those under the law that we might receive adoption and ascension, full rights, full privileges for all. Then he goes on in verse 6 and 7 to talk about how the Spirit is going to be into you to, to remind you of this freedom that you have. So he tells us that salvation that we've been given is more complicated than we thought. Salvation equals redemption. It equals
1: uh, redemption plus adoption, and adoption means freedom, but it
0: also means family. We're not just released from prison and say, find your way home, we're released from prison and now you're being part of a family. We have been saved to something. We've been given some sort of community context that we live this you're not simply on our own. We have been given each other. How does this affect how we live. So we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus really let himself go and said, I'm going to tell you what Jesus is all about, so here it comes. And he gave us a whole series of things. So we're just going to pull out a couple of those things really quick to look at what they mean. So the first practical application was murder versus hatred. The law says don't murder people. And Jesus says, yeah, but don't hatefully disrespect people. You know what, don't even call people names. That might be like you're killing them in your heart. So when you learn to love, to honor, to cherish people, when you cherish them in your heart, then you also won't murder them. The point wasn't to not murder, right? Of course that's the point. But it came back before that. How would life be better if we could learn to love, honor, and cherish each other first? Then of course murder would be the issue. You can go way beyond just not murdering someone. The next one adultery versus lust. Sure, don't commit adultery. It hurts people. Right? It's not a big secret. That's what the law said. Sure, that's what the Ten Commandments said. But it's aiming way too low. Don't use other people for your fantasy, for your game. Don't cultivate a heart of user. Even if your body's not fully involved, it's creating something evil inside of you. And as it grows, as it feeds, it gets bigger. It becomes more dominant. It's disrespecting. It's dishonoring someone else. But when you focus on honoring people, regardless of who they are, and you honor them because of
1: who they are
0: before Christ from the inside out. If that's your bones, if that's how you're going to interact with people, then yeah, you won't get an adultery. It goes together. And it's, when we, it's when we turn off part of those states that we fall, we fall into more difficulty. The that's one: oaths versus truth-telling. Legalities. Swear by this or swear by that. Just tell the truth. Man, would our society be different? If we just looked at each other and we told the truth. How much do you long to simply tell you the truth? <coughs> yeah, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Just plain language, please. The problem is sometimes we enjoy using language to the negative. I like to see what I can get if I do this, or say this, or imply. it. And I understand the contract. Uh, the problems we get is contracts business contracts, legal contracts, political language, that the whole point of that, if we're to be honest, the whole point is really about
1: manipulation.
0: The whole point is looking for a loophole, creating a loophole for yourself, and if you're on the other side, finding a loophole so that you're not going to be responsible. How do I get away with it? And people look at each other and say, let's be friends, let's shake on it. And you're both thinking at the same time, how do I get out of this? How am I not going really to be bound by those things? And we expect that, so but we expect that from the world around us. We come to learn that that's what people do, what politicians will say, what a business contract will be, try and get out of your cell phone uh, contract. You know, we'll try to make those things. You know that those things are designed to lock you down. But in a family, when we are family, <coughs> You should not have to look at the final thing. It shouldn't be implied contract that when I say something to you, you need to look at the final thing first. We shouldn't come to the place where we say, what? I didn't actually lie. Right? you ever said this? Yeah, I know. Maybe you do too. I didn't actually lie. You see what I said was. And we set the whole thing up to try and say, there was always that hole there. Uh, you just didn't see it. Sucker. It's not the way we should live. No manipulation with our words. Speak plainly. Be straightforward. This is a call to living new covenant. Tithing versus joyful generosity. Jesus is clear. Tithing is old coming. We are not under the law. And yet, there's a greater story to flesh out here. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about this one because this is a question that comes up more frequently. A couple of things that we can say about tithing. First, the origin of tithing was a spontaneous gift of gratitude. I'm grateful and I want to express it. The first mention of tithing happens before the law is given. It was Abraham who said, I have been blessed by God and I want to give back. The scriptures are there so you can look at it. Number two, God incorporates tithing into the Torah. Next step, it's part of the law. But it's not the way that we read it. There's a lot more <laughs> in what we say. 10% of everything you will give to God as a sacrifice. Put another 10% aside and give it away to priests and to do the need. Put another 10% aside. How many percent has that so far? 30%. How many of you have ever heard someone say that 30% is your time and responsibility? We're not even following the Old Testament law. Alright? Put another 10% aside and you'll like this little better. Put that third 10% aside and set it on yourself. That's fun money. That's celebration money. Go out with some friends and eat that money up. Enjoy. Laugh. That was part of the law. The law was never written as a shh. You Be know, oppressed by it. It was always about relationship. Appreciating what you can get. And So, gratitude was always supposed to. Part of it. The scriptures are there so you read about tithing and get all excited about giving you 30%. Um, God encourages tithing as worship and withholding as robbery. So, as the time goes along, as, as history comes, we get to Malachi. Malachi is the big one that we talk about because it's right near the New Testament. Once it becomes a law that you have to give this much to God, when you withhold part of that, when you withhold the tithe, God can now say that you are robbing me of what should have been given to me. And that's what God can say. You're supposed to do this, but you're not, so that I'm being robbed. Don't be stingy. Next, Jesus affirms the value of the tithe that I Sure, it's the same thing as the other. Sure, tithing is a great first step.
1: But let's go beyond
0: tithing. In Matthew and Luke, he says to the Pharisees, you tithe, and you know what? I affirm you in that. But you should
1: have gone way beyond that, way beyond your tithe, to consider justice,
0: compassion, mercy, in the weightier matters of the law. The new covenant church never goes back to teach tithing, grateful, gentle, taking well beyond a 10% tip. The tithe would be going backwards, back to kindergarten, and instead of going ahead to graduate school, spiritual maturity. The ending that we come to is that grace grows gratitude, and gratitude gives gladly. Say that 10 times. If you're going to take something away, that's your tweet. That's your highlight. That's the spot that you want to have in your head. Grace grows gratitude, and gratitude gives gladly. I've been given so much. I love giving I am free from those things. I'm not held by them. So what do you say when we're struggling financially, right? Things are tough, what about the title? First of all, you need to understand the pressure is off.
1: Experience
0: the truth of grace. You don't have to, you are free to. If it doesn't work right now, we'll take that as it comes. To be healthy financially, those who look at our lives and see that we do live in a culture that encourages consumerism, selfishness, and debt, all of them as normal. We then bind to that cultural norm and we acquire debt, and we say, it's normal. I can handle that. Then when it comes to generosity, we say, oh, I can't give right now because I have debt. Giving and generosity always become things that I will do later. I will do after, I will do when I finally pay off my debt, when I'm finally settled, when life slows down a little bit, when life evens out, then I will be able to. And anyone who's lived any part of life knows that those things just don't come. And if we buy into a normative pattern of debt creation, and then the language comes debt stewardship, how do I maintain my debt for the rest of life? That then became a key guiding principle, a key living principle for everything else. Every other part of your life is now decided by the fact that you put yourself into debt at some point. I'm going to do that after. And don't get me wrong, debt needs to be paid. Right? Okay? We don't hang on those things. It's crippling for us, it's bad, it, it cripples us in our ability to have faith. you should pay off our debt. But somewhere in there, somewhere in there, there's times we need to say that this death probably never should have happened in the first place. And now it's governing everything else. So is there some sort of self-inflicted, societally encouraged norm that undercuts our ability to live radically generous lives? Because of the world that we live in, because of the patterns that we all have, has that by its nature undercut this ability to live a life? Something that we didn't uh, observe as being counter Christian, but is now uh, crippling us in living the way we choose to live. For myself, I have found there is great personal, spiritual value in maintaining a lifestyle of generosity that is normative regardless of circumstance. It is my firm conviction that the life that you long for with God is so often just on the other side of the wall. And that wall was broken down and you passed through it with your use of, meaning your generosity of time, treasure, and talent. I must give. I must serve. I must use my giftedness. All of these are part of my relationship with God. And if I turn those off and then I say, God, where are you? I I say, But this is all part of the plan. You took out some of those key steps that are, that are going to require faith. I'm use all of those for the glory of God, and in doing that, I meet him in the midst. I meet him in the middle, and I meet him there in ways that I haven't previously experienced. These are marks of the Spirit at work in you. These are marks of spiritual maturity, no longer just a child being taken care of by someone else. Now moving into and growing up into spiritual maturity, I will make my relationship with God, and I will be the one who chooses to have faith. No longer what somebody else will do for me, how I will choose to participate, how I will listen to God in these spots. A growing faith, in relationally interactive ways, generosity, time, treasure, talent, guarantees that there is interaction Personal contact. It's not just about me, it's a community way of living. I have to live beyond me. Grow in the grace of God's God has given to you.
1: So, at the end, the point, you have freedom, God has given to you,
0: but now it's time for you to step into that maturity. It's time to grow up. So, no longer are the questions as easy, but consider this for yourself. Is your heart murderous? Are your hands? Is your heart murderous? Do you have that anger, that malice inside those people? Is your heart nervous? Is your imagination adulterous? Do you imagine what you could take somebody else for? How you could use them for your benefit? Is that the way that you are thinking? Is your language? Manipulate. How do you use yours? Is your giving joyfully generous?
1: So if you have your uh, notes there, have, have this uh, statement that you can try
0: to help you flush this thing up, so you can try to make something clear. I didn't one we believe tithing, which is the act of setting aside 10% of your income for the work of God, is a healthy practice of gratitude and a baby step in radical new covenant generosity. It is not a rule to be enforced, lest become a burden, less than a blessing, a legalism rather than an act of love. It seems good to us in the Holy Spirit to the extent that we understand the Scriptures that Christians should be encouraged to consider talking to their local churches as an opportunity to express their gratitude to God, a wise way to support the needs of the church family, and as a kind of ongoing training for bigger and bolder expressions of the joyful joy. So you say, What? 10% of all I make? That's a lot of money! <coughs> then, first of all, stop for a second. And I want you to start with gratefulness, gratitude. Be grateful that 10% of what you have is a lot of money. There are people who 10% of what they have is not a lot money. You are blessed. Be joyful at first and foremost. Then, start where you are. It's not about the numbers. It's not about getting the mark. Start where you are in life. Is it going to take faith in God to get over this reallocation of money, this adjustment of spending, this adjustment of priorities? Yes. That's the point. The point is not the money. The point is the faith to say God will be with me in this. I restructure my life because Jesus is Lord, not because I have to fulfill a requirement. Jesus is Lord. He's just helping me see that in all the areas of my life. He's helping me to see it where I spend and what I keep. I put it all under the Lordship of Christ, just like everything else. So people ask this question to me. Some of you might asked this, I don't remember. They say, Graham, who pays for this? Who runs this and takes care of it? The district sends in, who funds this thing? You do. You know? Uh, there's no big sugar daddy behind the scenes. We collect an offering. We enable people to give. We use this box over here. And for people who consider this to be their family, we say it's an opportunity for you to contribute to help the built To fund the mission, to enable and empower us to be generous with people in our community and around the world. It all comes from you. This is your family, and this is one of the ways that you can support, help support that family. This is one of the ways that I express. I'm all here. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us. Help us to trust you and to live our life as if you will show up. When we need you, in whatever area it is, finding things that we are missing, searching for things that we lack, will you show us again that you will be found Whether it has to do with the way I think or the way I speak, the way I interact with people, I choose to use the resources that I have. Would you become Lord of all those things? I want to surrender to you. I want to ask that you would make that part of my life. And I would grow in that way. Would Jesus help me with this? And help my friends this world celebrate the freedom that we have in Amen. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have. Power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that His love, this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Be blessed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be it's better when you are here, so thanks for being here today. It's better when we're together. We have a choice and a chance to lift these things up in the community, the more we can